Welcome to Data Hurdles, a weekly podcast where we explore the impacts data and technology have on our day-to-day lives. My name is Michael Burke. And I'm Chris Detzel. Welcome to another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well today, Chris. I'm a little off. I've got some pretty bad allergies as, uh, you know, this is our second time going through this. So, but I'm excited to be here. We've got a special guest today, Alex. Alex, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to you know, be with you, with you both. My name is Alex Martinick. I'm the industry practice lead for financial services and business resilience with Esri. We are a GIS company based out of Southern California. That is so cool. And for our audience, because you know we're all coming in at different places, what is GIS? What do you do? And what does the company do? Yeah, so Esri's been around now for a little over 50 years. We started off as a small consulting firm and have grown to being the world leaders in this idea of GIS, that's geographic information systems. And we produce, uh, you know, a high level here, we produce software to help data scientists, uh, market researchers, market planners understand the locational elements of their data so that they can make more precise decisions. So whether it's in real estate doing a site suitability analysis or if you're in market or market planning, marketing, looking at uh, consumer behaviors and demographics, we can help take that next dimension of the data to operationalize it to stakeholders. That is really neat. And so obviously this is a very niche space, right? I mean, used by almost everybody around the world. How did you get into this space? Well, what's funny is GIS professionals joke often that uh, by accident. Uh, really, it's funny, and I'll get into thinking spatially and why it's it's innovative and transformational, but it's still inherent to who we are, you know, as as people, as as analysts. You know, one of the oldest tools ever made was a map. That's one of the earliest tools made. But uh, back in 2012, I was in this uh, program sponsored by the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, this was to help train the next generation of intel analysts, and I was coming into it from a critical infrastructure protection background, counterterrorism background. And I came across this elective course on GIS. And about two or three days into the course, I I was completely hooked. I had what a lot of us call that aha moment when you start to see data a different way. Uh, I was working on this just complex analysis of the Islamic State in Syria. I know a lot of data scientists don't always start. It was Syria in 2012, but that's where I started. And uh, I had this 10 to 15 page intelligence assessment I was writing for our stakeholders. And it was gonna be shared off to different universities and and different elements of the government, all open source, non-confidential, non-security clearance worthy type of stuff. But I was really getting into these hours looking at every word I put into this, knowing uh, someone might read 50 words, 100 words. How do I get my point across? Well, I decided I'm gonna make a map, right? I'm in this course, I'm seeing data in a different way. I'm gonna take all of these concepts I've been learning about for the last two years in counterterrorism, I'm gonna just put it up there. So the first slide deck, or the first slide I had in my deck was a map and it was of Syria. And it was looking at about five or six different variables at once. It was looking at historic spend in infrastructure from the al-Assad regime over the last two decades. Uh, It was looking at where people lived, uh, where there was investment in road networks and where there was access to fresh water. And I kid you not, the stakeholders, I had probably 12 slides in my deck. This was the only slide I needed in 30 minutes because the map was understood intuitively almost immediately by everyone in the group. They could see it 
and understand, regardless of their background, oh, that's why the Islamic State is spreading in that region. This, you can see it and understand it, you know, intuitively at that level. And ever since then, I, I couldn't help but apply spatial thinking to everything I did. And so I came to work for Esri. That is, that is incredible. And what a neat story. I mean, when you think about how one project, one map, really, defined your career in this organization, that, that's cool. I mean, and so with Esri and, and with geospatial data, you're talking about adding these layers of information really to tell a better story. But in, in like the um, commercial and enterprise space, how are customers using this type of data? I mean, we talk about real estate. We're talking about layering things on in a static form. Is GIS also something that can be done in real time? How does it work? Yeah, so what I love about spatial thinking is that it is innovative and, and transformational. And I don't mean to be cringe by saying, I, listen, we've heard the term innovation probably four or five times over since the uh, first smartphone. We're, we're becoming numb to the fact of how fast technology is moving. Uh, but spatial is kind of evergreen. Like I mentioned, it's like the first tool we as a species created to understand the world around us. So, you know, if we look at innovation, it's not the technology, it's the thought behind it. And so, you know, if you look at the iPhone, it wasn't just that it was a phone. It was what if, you know, the idea was what if we blend almost all consumer electronics, electronics into a single device? Same thing with cloud computing, right? And the internet of things. What if we democratize access to information services, uh, to, to everyone, regardless of where they are. When I'm talking about spatial, the innovative idea is really this. What if we start to see the world as one system, right? Not just disparate things. What if we had a common framework for governments and businesses to understand complex challenges? We can talk about climate change or if we're looking at you know, diversity and inclusion. Uh, when we're talking about commercial real estate as one system, you know, What's the main motto of real estate? It's location, location, location. Everything from doing a site suitability analysis, from network optimization to understanding highest and best use for your customers. These are all inherently spatial workflows. But yet, oftentimes, a lot of commercial real estate firms, a lot of retailers, they may have some you know, GIS in the background. But spatial thinking is not in the forefront of that decision making in a lot of cases. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you brought you keep bringing up the real estate example. Um, when I bought my last house, I actually leveraged GIS data to help me better understand the properties as I was looking at. I have this. Um, my my father was a real estate broker, so I was able to access real estate data. But the challenge is that's all in tabular form, and it's really hard to understand how that data relates to the world or the spaces that you want to live in. And so I leveraged the GIS data to look at things like wetlands, um, the houses, how far I was away from the schools that I was in, what school district, crime overlays. And it really helped me make a more informed decision about where to buy a house. And nowadays, I mean, this was a while ago, but you know, Zillow and others have gotten much better at this. But I think that you know, it really led me down this path of, of excitement, realizing that the government and uh, the United States has so much free data available uh, in the GIS space. It's just incredible how much you can you can download as a as a citizen, right? And use to, at your disposal if you know how to use the right tools. 
No, exactly. And I'm glad you bring that up that you used it. I did the same thing. I bought my house in 2017. Uh, you know, my, my dad used to always joke that luck is nothing more than when preparation met opportunity. So I, I got in uh, for a millennial as good as you can get into real estate. But I did the same thing because I found that the mantra of location, 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 you know, it, it was a loaded phrase because you know, spatial insights, they're contextual, but they are also subjective. I mean, geospatial data is objective because it is tied to a location. It's tied to a spatiotemporal variable. That in of itself is subjective. But you know, what are the, what are, what's the context that matters most to you? That may have been different than me. So when someone's saying, oh, this is a good neighborhood, great. What does that actually mean? Does the buyer care about proximity for schools? Does the buyer, uh, are they like me? Are they a runner? Do they want access to green space? Do they want access to trails? You know, all of these different considerations, the contextual value of that site, it's, it's a location-based variable, regardless of that preference. Proximity to work. I, you know, I want to build a commute. I, thankfully, being in Southern California, do not have to go on the freeway to go to work. That was my number one criteria. I'm one of the few that probably can get to avoid all of the gridlock on uh, Interstate 10. But still, you know, all of these things together are how we understand the world, and they're inherently spatial. Absolutely, and it's amazing that um, you know this geospatial data also evolves over time right, and can change drastically over time. Uh, we've got things, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, the environmental factors, right? How are things changing around the world at scale? Um, what are some of the applications that you've used this data for, um, especially in the temporal space, right? Because I think that that is so prevalent to some of the biggest concerns that we have around the world, whether it's intelligence-based or environmental. So much is changing all at once. This is the wonderful thing with where I've pivoted my career. In the last five years or so, I've been more focused on business resilience. So again, that, that traditional intelligence defense background I had there, um, I've now pivoted towards equipping the private sector with the analytical tools they need to overcome some of these challenges. Uh, I joke that I learned to make maps to fight terrorism. Now I battle climate change, right? And so within financial services, that's the primary area I serve. Uh, whether it's a traditional bank that has their own uh, portfolio or I'm working with like a real estate investment trust. What we're looking at is first creating an operational base map. What's the, what's the digital representation of your business functions, that digital twin, so that you can first understand where do you currently have holdings? Where is the value based on your, your customer segments and, and your access? And then how is that going to change over the next 5, 10, 15 years? We, we all know that regardless of the cause, climate change is now so much more than just uh, an existential threat to businesses. We are seeing the direct impact of climate-driven disruptions today. And so we're looking at like targets for 2030 or 2050. That's not when everything just happens at once. There will be a gradual lead up, similar to what we experienced with COVID-19. It'll happen gradually, then all at once. And so we're looking at what's the current footprint and then how is that footprint overlaid with different risk layers to contextualize uh, the, the risk, contextualizing where there are vulnerabilities to say a rise in tropical storms, uh, a inherent risk of resource scarcity or drought, uh, and then creating to where for an investment professional, where do you need to divest in your current portfolio? But most importantly, where do you need to start purchasing real estate today that will be valuable in 15, 20 years? based on the various projections given by 
intergovernmental agencies like the United Nations or other data providers. So um, agricultural forecasting is huge in this space. As we're looking at where is grain and other commodities, where will they be viable in 2030, 2040, 2050 under these different projections that we can map? That's so interesting. And uh, there's a there's a company I came across a couple of years ago, Intelia Agriculture. I don't know if you've worked with them before, but um, they essentially, one of their big platforms, which I found so fascinating, was they use GIS data to predict soybean crops, success and risk. And especially in South America, there's this huge risk of washout. Right where your one one storm can destroy a whole year's crops. Oh yeah. And so the volatility on this platform is really to help estimate buy, trade, and sell soybean and other crops. And it is just incredible that GIS data, but it's it's more than that. It's the risk layers that they've built on top of that to make it an intelligent platform. As an organization, are you guys providing primarily the baseline data to enable customers to build that type of intelligence? Or are you also implying and providing that additional layer of data for risk forecasting and other things like that? Well, that's the wonderful thing. And this is why I, I did choose to come to Esri, because as an organization, we provide um, just an unfathomable amount of free data. We have this product called the Living Atlas of the World. It's the largest curated geospatial database. It is open to all of our user community, whether someone comes in and buys a single seat of our cheapest product uh, over to some of our enterprise deployments. The Living Atlas brings in and integrates uh, data from private parties, uh, governmental agencies, uh, and a lot of our collaboration happens on that international uh, level, whether it's through United Nations uh, SDGs, whether it's through uh, various elements of the United States uh, federal government or state and local governments. Our reach has enabled us to create those partnerships to bring in data from NASA and NOAA and USDA and provide that to anyone who's using our, our software. We're, we're creating that open framework for both the policymakers and the executives. Again, we have the baseline application that can help organizations understand their own proprietary layout, right? What is the digital twin of their operations? What is the financial implications of of their individual sites. Nobody else has to touch that. That is their proprietary information. But then they can overlay, right? Layer on top, all of the context. Again, it's that one system mentality. Uh, so working with some of the, the banks um, here in the United States, uh, another area other than sustainability and climate risk has been on social equity, right? For the last three years, we've seen a fundamental change in business culture trying to overcome uh, systemic barriers to equity within the system that have largely mm -hmm. fallen along racial lines. Uh, Decades-long practices from the 1800s, the early 1900s of racial exclusionary tactics like redlining, the use of racial covenants. These were purposeful policies meant to prevent BIPOC uh, equity and ownership of land. Those same uh, types of almost location-based workflows are now being flipped upside down to say, where have there been systemic harm because of that? Where are there banking deserts in the United States in otherwise well-developed areas that are the result of redlining? And we've partnered with federal agencies, uh, private sector, and also academia to tackle this. There is the Mapping Prejudice Project um, that has been exclusively focused at looking at what's the correlation from a data science perspective between redlining and racial covenants and today's modern day banking deserts, which can be, again, in a very well-developed uh, urban or metropolitan area, 
It's the reason why, if you're looking at inaccessibility to financial services, one in five Black families in the United States are still unbanked. If you were to overlay that against the areas where That's they live amazing. now, yeah, it, when you start to look at it spatially too, you can understand the scope of the problem. One in five Black families, that's a statistic. What's the data hurdle here? Contextualizing and understanding where it's happening. If you look at some of the definitions of a baking desert, uh, you'd have the Fed saying, there are no baking deserts. But when you're looking at it from accessibility, right? Where is it someone lives in relationship to the context of location, location, location? This person lives here and this is their access to public transportation. This is the opportunity cost for them to get to a branch. This yep. is what it would take. It's virtually inaccessible. You can be two miles away from a bank in downtown Los Angeles. You are not accessible to that branch unless you are walking. And that's not necessarily equity within financial services. And all of this in the one system mindset almost directly correlates to other types of deserts, food deserts, uh, broadband inaccessibility. That's the wonderful thing because you have your digital twin of your operations. That's one thing. The context is never ending on top of that. Absolutely. And it is incredible just to think about problems like that and how the technology the technology that we have today, we can actually measure some of this in a much more effective way. You're talking about banking deserts, right? We look at a distribution of banks and static, you know, it's a totally different story than if you're able to understand and measure the cost of somebody traveling to one of those banks and actually layering on that data and having that information available now to be able to do some of that forecasting is incredible, right? Yeah, we were working with this one group uh, out of Indonesia, Bank Momolet. And they are, it's not a household name here in the United States, but Bank Momolet is one of the largest uh, Sharia-focused banks in the world, uh, servicing uh, Muslims in Indonesia. They did a relatively simple geospatial workflow looking at all of their uh, customers uh, and looking at accessibility scores. They were able to reduce their overall annual operating costs uh, by optimizing their retail network of their full service ATMs uh, and then incorporating, and this was amazing to me, a mobile branch, right? They, they retrofitted this, <laughs> this rugged RV to be a mobile branch just for administrative purposes, right? to create a set schedule to go to very remote areas that would have a schedule to say, hey, Tuesday is the day your branch is gonna be here from you know, eight to four. That's <laughs> when you can start servicing your, they reduced their operating expense and significantly grew their market share. If that's not a win-win, uh, I don't know. But again, think about this one system. By reducing their operating costs and their retail footprint, is that not also lowering their carbon impact? It may not have been a sustainability initiative, but you better believe when you're looking at the production of ATMs, having to produce less ATMs is a reduction in the carbon footprint of those ATMs. All of this together is how you can overcome several of the seemingly over, uh, you know, insurmountable obstacles together. So with GIS data, we are, you know, we are creating these massively complex systems to capture, organize, and maintain this information. When we talk about data quality across these different systems, how do you manage it? As an organization, what kind of steps do you take to ensure that quality is there, right? And being maintained accurately? No, that is a, a certainly a challenge. One thing that Spatial does, I believe more than any other type of, of data view, is it increases transparency. 
and the more eyes you have on something, uh, the more accountability there is on that data. If I was to give you a map of your community and say, this is where your house is, and you know that's not where your house is, you know something's immediately wrong versus if I gave you just the latitude and longitude, right? It, it's how the spatial data is used increases the transparency, whether it's a static fixed asset like a, like a property or dynamic real-time assets like a, um, a sensor in the field, uh, tracking where vehicles might be within logistics and freight. This is used to look at real-time conditions like where is my truck? What are the conditions around that truck in case it's a refrigerated unit that has perishables and it's 110 degree day in, in Nevada or California along the 10? And what are the traffic conditions? Do we have a risk of spoilage, right? Uh, what are the, you know, being able to track all of these things together increases the transparency. But you're right. Uh, fundamentally, data integrity is, is huge. And that's where Again, I would say that being able to see it is, again, a different level of understanding the data. It's universal, too. Uh, when I first joined Esri, I got to see uh, former Governor Martin O'Malley speak on how they implemented GIS on the state level, uh, being able to track all of their assets. And what he was saying, he made a quip about being a policymaker, and you know, it's simple enough for me to understand. And it was that show me my house, my, show me my house type of mentality right? What's the first thing any of us do when we open up a digital map, whether it's Google, Bing, or Esri software? What was the first thing you did? Oh, of course. You Google your house immediately, your address. <laughs> exactly. You looked at your house. You looked at where you worked. You looked at your local coffee shop and you want because we all understand the world around us, similar to our ancestors with, you know, their, the early maps on cave walls. We all understand the world around us through a locational view. So when it's presented that way, it's that illusion of simplicity. There's a whole lot of complexity behind within the data science and the, the geospatial data to ensure there's the integrity, but you see it and understand it intuitively. It's, it's quite clear and simple at that point. Really amazing. And, you know, as a data scientist and, you know, definitely wanting to do more with GIS data, to be completely transparent, I've done a few fun projects, but never anything at super large scale. How do you get involved? What are some of the best practices for, for people on the call who are interested in this, might not have a lot of experience. I know that there are some of like the GIS languages and other things like that that become pretty tricky pretty fast. How do you get started? Yeah, I think the first step and why you know, I really wanted to speak with you both today is just to start on the, the, the first level is start thinking spatially, right? Start to think about where is it you could incorporate uh, geospatial thinking into uh, your day-to-day -to -day types of operation. We call this the geographic approach, right? It's first and foremost, a way of thinking and problem solving to integrate data through the context of, of spatial. Uh, next, I mean, whether it's Esri or, or uh, you know, another type of GIS platform, the way technology has developed over the last 10 years has truly democratized it across, you know, it's not just about anymore having to learn one specific language in order to utilize a GIS. Um, when I think about the groups that I work with, uh, we have plugins for Python, for R, for Hadoop, for you, know, you name it, Arcade. It's so accessible now. When I first learned GIS, yes, I had to learn about uh, very niche geographic principles like the, the shape of the earth and different projections and, and underlying datum and and all mm -hmm. these elements. But now 
I've worked, I worked within commercial real estate for a two-year period on our team. And I was working with brokers uh, who were part of CCIM, who were probably 30 or 40 years into their career, had never touched anything in their computer other than Microsoft Word and maybe Adobe or DocuSign. And they were making maps in an hour, right? Most of now is a UX, it's a GUI interface. And you know, I, I want to kind of do a throwback here. Our founder, Jack Dangerman, uh, when he first started Esri as a consulting firm about 50 or so years ago, uh, it was, again, working on a project basis when it became a product, when it became a software that others could, could leverage. The way he saw it was that there was the map and the map was nothing more than the visual interface into the database itself. He saw this as, as a, you know, as database management. He did not see this as something disconnected from traditional data science. It was just a different way to look into it. So when I open up like a, um, an SPSS, pulling out my poli-sci background here, when I open up SPSS and I have to learn all the tools and learn how to read the, the various numbers or the tabular formats, yes, I have to kind of learn a new language. But when it's a map, we all understand it. Absolutely. So I think that, um, you know, one of the things that is really interesting for me and, and diving into geospatial data is what does the future look like, right? We have all of these new technologies, all of these new ways. When we talk about maps, right, today what we're talking about, and I think what everybody's thinking of is that picture of blue and green, right? But what are all the other kinds of, of ways that we're tracking information in a geospatial system? And you think of heat or admittance of certain chemicals or compounds and all of these sensors that are being able to be layered on top of your standard geospatial understanding of you know, X and Y. Um, how is that evolving in this space, right? Is there new technology coming out, new ways of tracking information? And what are some of the really creative ways that you've seen you know, possibly with an IoT space? We mentioned a few of those examples that customers are leveraging this type of infrastructure to do innovative and new things within their own businesses? Well, you know, I couldn't begin to tell you and that's, that. here's why. The most beautiful thing I've seen over the last eight years since I first made that map on ISIS um, is the democratization of it, right? This is no longer just this prized commodity of a, of a select few that understand how to utilize a geospatial system. We have programs in place now for K through 12, through nonprofits and NGOs. And what I think the future is similar to when the personal computer, you know, when you look at the adoption of it in the 80s, the 90s versus today, it's again, that, that, that approaching a problem spatially first and looking at its connectedness to other types of issues. Um, a, a lot of what we do in the, in the, ge in the geographic space is rooted in nothing new. It's, it, if you look back at John Murr, who was a 19th century naturalist and uh, traveler and uh, scholar, he had this quote that the more you observe anything in isolation, the more you see its connectedness to everything. I think that's the future as we start to look at things like racial inequities in the United States and also globally, when you're looking at workforce equity and equal pay, through uh, developing nations, when you're looking at climate change, when you're looking at you know, economic and political instability and volatility, all these things are connected. 
And when you start to look at how public-private partnerships are being formed to combat them, you, you can't just have a one-off isolated strategy to fix these types of issues. If we're looking at overcoming climate change uh, before it's too late, it's not just enough to, you know, we reduced our carbon output by 20% last year. Great, you grew 300%, so you're still net positive, right? There has to be a broader coalition that's leveraging the same underlying framework to understand the issue. And that's, I think, inherently geospatial, right? I think that because it democratizes the insights and the accessibility and the transparency, that's what we're looking at is more people being able to increase data literacy by looking at it through a location lens first. Alex, I love this. You know, I think that there is so much good to come out of data like this, right? But I've also seen this kind of a little bit scary thing, right? It's not too bad of as more and more data sources become publicly available and open sourced, we start to see new risks emerging from things like geospatial data. And I think a good example of that was the uh, Strava heat maps. I know you guys are all runners, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Where they were able to identify through the, the open data that Strava had published on runners, military bases right, through the heat maps of these running patterns of running around buildings that didn't exist. Um, are there any other risks like that as we start to see things emerge in the open data, like unintended consequences of exposing more and more data collectively? And how do we monitor those risks? Ooh, see, you're, you're, you're pulling in the first background I have, which is, you know, uh, my first master's was in national cybersecurity studies. I say first because uh, I, I'm getting my second tomorrow. I'm graduating with my MBA in finance tomorrow morning. Actually. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. I no, can't believe you. that you're here. <laughs> you want to know what? I'm picking up my graduation cake right after this conversation. And then I'm going to go running on Sunday because of how much cake I'll eat. But no, you bring up a great point, but it all comes down to the fundamentals. That's why these things are not mutually exclusive. You know, if I can do anything in my career that I'd be proud of, it's to really solidify that traditional data science is not separate from geospatial data management, right? They are one and the same. If we're looking at a locational framework, that has to sit on top of a traditional data science stack. We're not replacing that. It's, a, it's an engine of contextualization. But yes, the same principles of confidentiality, integrity, and availability will apply. So if you're creating a digital twin of your operations, right? Uh, let's just say you're a global um, commodity uh, asset management firm and you're creating your digital footprint of, of your holdings, you may or may not want that publicly accessible. And because of that, our software enables you to protect that, right? In a on-premise-like setting, you don't have to publish out your data that is your proprietary business data. I mean, we have 75% uh, penetration of the Fortune 500 space. I'm willing to bet that before I reached out, neither of you really heard of Esri, right? No, I have. Oh, well, that's good. I, I also had, but only because I'm a data person, right? So we, we knew a little yeah. bit about it, Most yeah, of but not enough. People, <laughs> but that's because we never made the headlines in a negative way, right? We've been around for yeah. over 50 years, have this yeah. penetration. We are the engine behind those companies. Uh, we are not the one that's trying to lead the way there. We are enabling them to lead the way. But yes, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. The fundamentals of any data management will still apply to geospatial. I, I remember that because I, I think I was still in my first master's when that came up with the heat map of different bases to say, 
oh, that, do, do we have a presence there? Yeah. Well, that you can clearly see the running line. Someone's doing a perimeter every day. Yep, yep uh, absolutely. Um, Alex, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure having you on the, day, the talk today. Um, please, if anybody has any questions or follow-up, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and I'm sure you're, you're definitely going to get a few of us reaching out after this, wanting to learn more about how they can get started with this data. So thank you for your time. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both. Alex, this is great. And so thank you for tuning in for another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. And lastly, before I say let's go, please rate and review us. We need all the ratings and reviews we can get. So thank you again. Bye-bye.